My name is Stephen Backhouse, and I'm a political theologian. That means that I'm primarily interested in how Christianity and nationalism and patriotism interact with each other. When I did my doctorate 15 years ago, everybody told me that Christianity and nationalism was a dead subject. It was boring and irrelevant because nobody cared anymore. And now, 2020, look at us now. All of a sudden, my subject is in every single newspaper, on every single Facebook feed that you can care to look at. Christianity and patriotism are bedfellows. But are they good bedfellows? Does it work? Is this a good idea to mix your national identity and your Christianity? What happens when we have politicians that can rely on Christians to be their most reliable citizens, their most enthusiastic supporters? What happens when nationalist politicians use the language of the Bible or of Jesus or of any other sort of Christian culture, knowing that it will work, that it will make them more popular, that will give them an enthusiastic response from the people they're trying to get the votes from? What has that done to our Christianity when it can be so reliably enforced and enlisted into the world of nationalism and patriotic allegiance? In the last few weeks, I've been getting a whole lot of emails and requests from friends and even from strangers asking me to comment or to help people illuminate what's going on in the United States and in Canada and Germany and Europe in Brazil, anywhere where you find popular expressions of evangelical or Protestant or Catholic Christianity being aligned quite closely with conservative or right-wing or outright nationalist politics. So I started to write my email responses to my friends, and I soon found that I was out of my depth. One of the main reasons I was out of my depth is I'm a Canadian who's been living in England for the last 20 or so years. I couldn't really talk about American-style patriotism without talking to some real Americans. So I thought about the fact that I actually met a few podcasters that I really liked. I once wrote a biography of a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and as part of the promotion tour for that, I was introduced to Chris Marchand, who has a podcast looking at various aspects of Christian culture and philosophy and art. Also, a couple years ago, I was interviewed by Sean McCoy for his podcast, looking at patriotism and nationalism and war and violence. Both of these guys are Americans. Both of them I consider fellow travelers, people who are interested in this subject, who have good hearts and open minds. And I thought, I need their help. They're going to help me talk about American-style patriotism and evangelicalism. And I'm going to help them talk about political theology and what it means to be followers on the way of Jesus. And it just so happens I've got my fellow travelers right here, right now. Sean, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? And what kind of stuff are you interested in exploring? Uh, where, where I'm from is from the great state of Texas in the United States, as you well know. And what I do, I've worked uh, various jobs. I was in the military when I was younger. I worked for, in the oil and gas industry for 20 plus years. And then I picked up a mic and decided to do podcasting a couple of years ago, which coincidentally or ironically, depending how you want to look at it, uh, was the, the catalyst for that was the 2016 election. Okay. So yeah, so here we are going into 20, 2020 and finding ourselves yet again with an opportunity to, to respond to what is going on in the world relative to politics and things of that nature and also theology. 
because you and I weren't friends in 2016 and we weren't friends before this. I, I feel like we're friends now. Yeah. I heard you on the, heard you on the nomad podcast. Yeah. I'd been struggling, been searching internally for what it means to be, to follow Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? And you're an adult, adult convert to Christianity, right? Correct. Yeah. I was 30, my 32nd birthday. I got baptized. Okay. That's yeah. correct. Before yeah. that, I was not a fan. So to say the least, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave for another time, but yeah, so, the, so, so my introduction to you and where I, and reason why I was so excited and honored when you reached out to try to help you with this, just because I love podcasts and I love what you do, is your podcast particularly uh, shattered my fundamental uh, viewpoint on nationalism. And like I said, I'm from, I'm not just from the United States, I'm from Texas and I served in the military and that pride runs deep. And so yeah. as I started to wrestle the last couple of years with how do I reconcile that with my faith, how do I reconcile that with things like politics with things like our culture, the history of my country, the history of the things that we have done and where we've been, I started to wrestle and, and for lack of a better word, lose in some areas. And Brian Zahn had a podcast on Nomad that kind of shattered because I didn't understand. I mean, I don't mean to be divisive, but certain aspects of the current administration and current things that we've been in, and even historically, I, I'm, I don't, I reckon, I can't reconcile with some of those things very well. Mm. So it was a challenge, and Brian Zahn kind of kicked open my own inter introspective door and how I was looking at politics and how I looked at my own uh, citizenship and nationalism and what that meant to me. Mm. And when he, he busted open the wall and then they recommended in that podcast, if you should, if you like what Brian Zahn said, you should hear Stephen Beckhouse. Beckhousean mm -hmm. uh, viewpoint is much more macro, much more meta outside of just the U.S. And then I listened to your podcast and it just, it blew away everything for me in terms of the start or it helped me start a journey down letting go of so many things that I had brought with me as somebody who was born and raised uh, where I was and in the world that I was. Well, yeah, and it, and, and it, was, the, it was having that conversation with you. So your podcast is called Come to the Table. And you yes, set sir. a space so well for different people to communicate in a, in a really winsome, you, you provide a lot of space for people to talk. And there's disagreement and agreement, but it's all sort of done in a Christ-like way. And I thought, yeah, that's the kind of tone I'd like to set for the kind of stuff that we need to do here, because some of this material, as you already rightly pointed out, I mean, you were in the military, you were willing to kill and die for these ideas. I mean, they are important ideas, right? That's about as important as it gets. And so I just felt like, oh yeah, Sean is a guy that I'd love to talk this through with and like to test ideas off him and find out what he thinks. Because I really like the way that you set conversation. And the other person that I reached out for to be a co-producer on this is Chris Marchand. And Chris's podcast was, is called Post-Consumer Reports, which is a confusing name. And I'm going to let him explain why he's here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my, uh, it's my goal is just to confuse people with <laughs> titles. Yeah, so I have, I have a podcast that in, in many ways is about the convergence of art and faith. You know, I've, I've spoken to, to a lot of non-Christians on my podcast, too, because I'm just interested in the creation of art itself and what artists do in the, in the midst of creating. I'm fascinated by it. And I've especially, I've, I've talked with a lot of visual artists because I'm not that, I'm a musician and a writer. In the midst of all of that, I ended up talking to a, a number of theologians. And so Stephen, that's where, where you've come in. Mm. Theologians and thinkers and some pastors. I don't know, I don't know what it was. You, you wrote a book on Kierkegaard and I think I was just fascinated by this enigmatic little figure, this yeah. guy that didn't fit anywhere. I think in some ways that may, maybe is a good way to describe why I would be interested in, in doing this podcast. I'm, I'm doing this podcast because I am just feeling stuck. 
I'm feeling stuck right. in, in the tension of all the politics. It seems like everything is bifurcated. Everything is mm. separated into polarities. Mm. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, it's a, it's a question of, is there another way? <laughs> is there a way to get through this? I should say as well that I'm an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church mm -hmm. of North America. So I'm a pastor. I'm a music pastor. You know, I, I, I teach as well. I teach, um, I've taught classical Christian education. In many ways, I, I, I approach this as what might be called a conservative or, or um, an orthodox Christian, a, a small O orthodox Christian. But as the years have gone on, I cannot claim that title conservative when it comes to politics anymore. I, I, I'm so my tension is also that I'm bewildered. I, yeah. I, I maybe I grew up, I grew up conservatively, but I don't know what to, where to take things anymore. Uh, one of the ways I, I put this is regarding politics is I have come to some pretty strong beliefs about what nationalism is and where that lies with my faith, but. I still have to enjoy Christmas supper with the people who believe the exact opposite of me. So yeah. as a, as a follower, as a, as a Christian, I, I'm kind of going, yeah, what, do, what's my next step here? Because I'm not sure that your title of the, of the podcast has come to the table. Well, what if they don't want me at the table anymore, Sean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I'm living in the, into that tension and I'm wondering, yeah, what, what do we do? What's the next step on both the, the left and the right? We're, we're in the midst of a huge amount of cancel culture. Mm. where actually in my own in my own state there was a young woman who who had some really insensitive tweets or posts and she lost a scholarship because mm -hmm. she was flagged a volleyball scholarship to a university because of her quotes now she this is a young woman she's 18 years old i really disagree with the things that she said at the same time i'm i'm uncomfortable with cancel culture because it doesn't give us the opportunity to learn and to change my is that I can change. My hope is that others can come along with us and, and their their perspectives on all this can expand and change. I, I mean, partly what I've noticed is that I've, I meet a lot of people in, in the UK, in Canada, in, in the United States who, who know that the wheels have fallen off the normal way of doing politics. Like they don't look at their political landscape and think this is going great. We're done. Job done, everyone. I mean, they know it's bad, but they also just don't know what else could be out there. I'm a, I'm a theologian for my job. And what I do is I take theology on the road. I, I have this thing called tent theology, where it's just, I'm like a freelance theologian. And I go from to churches and networks and local places. And, and I help open up space for theology and theological reflection in these different groups. And that's what I do. But what I thought it would be fun to do is perhaps start a podcast called instead of tent theology, we call it tent talks. And the idea is that it's deliberately trying to explore some of these issues for people who are feeling that they know that things have gone wrong, but they don't know what the right thing could look like. They're followers of Jesus. They are Christians. They find Jesus still a compelling figure. They're not ready to just give up, but they also can't find themselves endorsing some of the cancel culture or the partisanship or the extreme uh, liberalism or extreme conservatism. They just can't find themselves in any of those positions. So part of what I want to do with these tent talks is to help renew a Christian imagination for what is possible, to go back to the source, to go back to the New Testament, to look at how the earliest Christians thought about these things. And also, as, uh, as perhaps this podcast continues, to bring in other voices, to continue our three-man conversation, but also to bring in other people, practitioners, thinkers, writers, artists, who are doing the work. And they might be doing the work 
and we haven't heard of them because religion and politics is like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. And so sometimes the people who are the loudest are the least worth listening to. Uh, but they have all the platforms. They have all the followers. They have the noise. But I happen to know a lot of good people. They might not be famous, but boy, are they worth listening to. They are in the deep end doing the work. And I wanted to find a way to just open up the space. And so the same way that Sean's table opens up space for really good conversation, the same way Chris's podcast, the, the reports, the post-consumer reports just allow a deep dive into the creative process of people doing their work. I just thought, what if we did that for theology? What if we did that for political theology? People living and working in a socio-politically engaged way who are avoiding the, the, the kind of extremes of partisanship and idolatry and anger and council culture that you've identified. So this is what I did. I've actually started recording these little episodes and I was just sending them to my friends and I realized this needed a bigger platform. I needed to go a bit bigger than just on my email list, which is why we're here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to release one of these episodes every week we're going to just keep going until it's done. And we're going to have a little, it's going to be composed of, of half hour, 40 minute talks from me about some aspect of political theology. And we're going to bring in interviews. We're going to weave in conversation. We're going to have time for musical interludes and artistic pieces. It's going to be a full-fledged exploration of a new Christian imagination for politics, theology, and social engagement. What do you think, guys? Do you want to do it? Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Conversation by conversation, right? That's how it happens. Fight bad ideas with good ideas. And we'll start our first episode of Tent Talks, a new Christian imagination after the break. Hello, friends. I have received an unprecedented number of emails and requests asking me to comment, frankly asking for help about how to deal with the nationalism and the rise of angry patriotic Christianity. This has been sparked by the uh, pictures that we saw of Donald Trump holding up a Bible in front of a church in Washington DC where he used the arm of the state to uh, clear peaceful protesters who were not breaking curfew and using gas and rubber bullets to wreak actual physical bodily harm on people in order to have a photo op holding up a Bible. And this event, for some reason, of all the things that Donald Trump has done and said, I can tell you it has set people off in a way I haven't noticed before after four years of having this person as one of the most prominent public spokespeople for the evangelical power arm. It has actually been this event which has just caused dismay amongst so many people. So people have been asking me to comment or to help. I thought that I would record this episode or this podcast rather than write because perhaps other people can hear this and I'm sure, I know, I know because the emails and the questions you sent me were the same ones from lots of different places, from Australia, from Canada, from Britain, and from America. I have had similar requests and similar notes of bewilderment, dismay, lack of faith, loss of faith, anger, 
rage, genuine hurt and love and attempt to reach across the divide. I'm telling you, I have never seen anything quite like this. And this is coming at the bottom or at the, <laughs> this was like the low point, the nadir of the protests, the violent uh, protests in America right now and spreading across the world in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis. And it's been an absolute tinderbox. The coronavirus lockdown, the, uh, the populations um, going insane, even well-meaning people just losing their minds over being locked down for so long. And then you add to the mix actual agents who don't mean well, who are actively trying to cause disruption and fear and hate. And uh, you get an absolute tinderbox for this event. You get the end of the road for African-Americans, end of the road for people who are just dismayed. It's a bad world. It is bad. It's dark out there. I've never seen anything quite this bad. And I'm somebody who's written and published stuff on the Nazis. And we're going to talk about this in a bit. Okay, I'm going to gather myself. Perhaps a little bit of housekeeping. There'll be some people who don't know who I am. Uh, perhaps you will have just been sent this link because it's going to touch on stuff that you've been asking about. My name is Stephen Backhouse. I am a, a, an academic and a teacher and a theologian who specializes in political theology and also specifically in nationalism and patriotism. I run a little podcast project called The Bible Study at the Beginning of the World, in which I've been taking people through half-hour episodes, uh, going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark and then the Acts of the Apostles, looking at the politics and the social and political aspects of those New Testament books. So as some people listening to this will have already been familiar with my voice and my story through that podcast, other people might have found me through, I did some work with Nomad podcast on, on nationalism and patriotism and violence. I've been interviewed on television, radio, podcasts, uh, and in print on these subjects. I'm an author of several books. I've written uh, um, church history books. I've written, uh, published a book on Christian nationalism. I've published a biography of Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher who was opposed to nationalism. I have a couple of master's degrees which were focused on Christian nationalists who were theologians and so I was analyzing their subject and picking apart their thought. I have a doctorate from the University of Oxford which again is on uh, nationalism and Christian nationalism. I don't say this to boast about it. I'm not bragging. I mean, my having multiple master's degrees and a doctorate doesn't make me right. God knows I'm wrong all the time and I love to admit it. But it does make me, statistically, probably the most qualified person you know on the subject of Christian nationalism. And so my opinion is earned. I've been earning it for 20 years. I've been speaking with nationalists, I've been observing and living in nationalist environments. I've been teaching and traveling around in universities, in churches, in businesses. This is what I do. 
So uh, I'm very happy to share it with you, especially because so many of my friends uh, and people I love are, are asking for help. So I'm going to try and give what I can. And you can take it or leave it. And if you don't like what I'm saying, uh, fair enough. You can always send me an email. You can always chat with me. But be aware, I am only interested in talking with people of peace, fellow travelers. And if you have genuine questions, then I'm so happy to talk with you. But if all you're going to do is just defend Trump or shout patriotic slogans at me or quote random Bible verses that you think are your knockdown arguments. Just be aware that I've already heard all this stuff. I've weighed it and found it wanting. And I'll explain why as this little talk goes on, I think. The other thing about me, you can hear my accent. I'm a Canadian who, when I was 19, I moved to the UK, to England. And I've been living in England now for 25 years. And in fact, it was my story of growing up in a very conservative, evangelical, conservative politically and Christianly. Uh, I grew up amongst people who called themselves fundamentalists. They self-identified as fundamentalists. They self-identified as conservatives. Uh, I grew up in that culture. And then when I moved to England just for an adventure, for fun, when I was 19, I ended up being around a group of people who called themselves Christians but didn't check all the same political and social boxes that I had been taught that one should check if one is to be a real Christian. They weren't tub-thumping patriots, they weren't gun-loving nuts, they didn't all agree about abortion, they didn't all agree about homosexual marriage or ordination, they didn't all believe in six-day creationism, they didn't all believe in the rapture, they didn't all vote for the red team so the blue team wouldn't win, or for the blue team so the red team wouldn't win. I discovered in England a little church filled with people that didn't all check the same boxes and yet were united in fellowship of the love of Jesus. And this was a world-changing, game-changing event for me because this was not the sort of culture I had grown up amongst. I had grown up amongst people where if you went into a room, you could guarantee of all those list of boxes that I just mentioned, you could guarantee which ones were going to get checked and which ones were not and which ones should be checked, and which ones shouldn't be. And you knew who they would all be voting for. The kind of people I grew up around often uh, expressed, I had friends who wished they were American so they could vote Republican. So this was the world I grew up in. And then moving to England just changed, opened up my world a bit. And that's what actually set me on the path to studying uh, the, the work that I did, because I discovered Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher, who has written a lot about uh, the difference between Christendom and Christianity, or perhaps better yet, the, being a disciple of Jesus and Christendom. And by Christendom, he didn't mean the um, official relationship between church and state. He meant the cultural backdrop of Christianity, the people who talk about Christian nations, and let's make America Christian again, or let's make Britain Christian again, those kind of people, or this is a Christian nation, or our founding fathers were Christian, all that stuff. That is Christendom. So it doesn't really have to do with the law of the land. It has to do with the culture of the place, with the imagination or the shared furniture, the shared mental furniture of a place. If that has been Christianized, what does that do to your awareness of Jesus and his way? And this was the uh, event. Kierkegaard really helped me 
put language to what I was experiencing, which was that I was living in a nation where I was uh, kind of dislodged from my home group, my home nation, and I was forced to being thinking again what it was to be a follower of Jesus, even though all the politics and the social habits didn't match up. So then I studied, uh, because of Kierkegaard, I studied philosophy and theology at university as an undergraduate, and then I did the uh, graduate work, which I described. And since then, I've been teaching. I used to work for a number of, I've worked for a number of different organizations and seminaries and theology colleges over the years, most recently WTC, and before that, St. Melitus, both in the UK. And I'm now the director of Tent Theology, which is a traveling theological enterprise where I get invited to come and live with churches or groups for a weekend or a week at a time, helping to open up space for theology within the local worshiping communities. And the idea is that you shouldn't need uh, to leave your worshiping community in order to think Christianly about your own Christianity. But as I say, my main area is actually the political thought, theology of it, the, the way that the church is an alternative politics, the way that the earliest Christians were thought of themselves as and were seen to be political adjutants, subversive, dangerous. They were seen to be turning the whole world upside down. They were seen to be agents of another kingdom, not instigators of a new religion. And so this is the ideas that animate my imagination, and this is what brought me to thinking about nationalism. Four years ago, my wife and I moved to California so that my wife could study at Bethel Church, which is the very well-known charismatic um, uh, church which runs a, a ministry course. And my wife was very interested in, in wanting to observe. She'd seen good things coming out of Bethel and wanted to observe them. So I went along with her, and I lived in, uh, in Northern California, a deeply red part of the country. And I lived in Northern California for a year, and I was there during the rise of Trump and during his election. So I was living in America during the presidential campaign. And then I lived in the States after Trump got elected. And of course, uh, the Bethel Church and their leadership, all their main leadership team are uh, pro-Trump and have lent their name to his cause. As much as possible, they've used their voice and their finances and their other resources to support Trump and the Republican cause. And they're no different in that respect than basically every other most, let's say it, most evangelical and most charismatic churches in America. And so we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But I want to make it clear here, I'm just decided in this series of podcast that I'm going to do, that I'm tired of hiding behind language like honour and dishonour. I'm tired of pretending that disagreement doesn't exist. And I'm, I'm tired of pretending that if we disagree with somebody that we are now also insulting them. I think that the Bethel leadership team, along with all the other prominent evangelicals in America, as well as any's that you might find in Australia or the UK or Germany or wherever. I think by supporting Trump and lending their support to him, they are demonstrating a failure of Christian imagination and they're showing their true colors 
of what they really do believe in despite their sentimental worship and despite their language. And I'm going to mention this more clearly as we start to deal with some of the questions that came in. But you have to hear that I am an insider here. I spent my resources, I quit my job to go and live with the Bethel people. I was not some cynical, arms-crossed academic judging them. I was fully involved and immersed in that environment. I love worship. I love going after prophetic words. I love healing and going after healing. I believe in the Holy Spirit as an active personal presence today. I believe in King Jesus and his way and his rule. And my charge here is that I don't think that Bethel believes in King Jesus. I think they've shown by their actions and their allegiances that they believe more in nationalism and militarism and make America great again than they do in the reign and rule of Jesus the King. And these are big charges that I'm making, but I'm not going to do them using insults. I'm not going to try and shame people. Ironically, I'm not going to use the same tactic that President Trump uses every single day in the messages that he himself is 100% responsible for and in his tweets. I'm not going to call my opponents losers. I'm not going to say they're weak. I'm not going to say they're morons. I'm not going to call them dogs. I'm not going to compare my penis size to theirs. I expect I'll get through this entire podcast without boasting about grabbing anyone's pussy. And if you are a Trump supporter who is somehow offended by my crude language, I don't even know what to say to you now. Congratulations, you've helped to create a world in which quoting verbatim the President of the United States comes with a language warning which is unsuitable for children. One of my friends who I actually met when I was in Bethel, one of the fellow students there, she writes to me and she asks, how do I have a conversation with Christians who loved the picture of Trump holding up the Bible? Is it worth my time? How do I build bridges? Okay, I chose to read this question first because it is indicative of many of the sorts of questions that I get. People just seeking, how do we cross this bridge, this chasm between my Christianity, which I just seem to say, see as obviously true and pointing towards one frame of reference, and other people who also call themselves Christian, who are coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Here's the headline, and then we'll fill in the blanks later. But the headline is, stop using the word Christian. We need to unwean ourselves from this label. It's becoming utterly meaningless, if you think about it. For quite some time now, the word Christian can cover sets of actions and beliefs that are diametrically opposed to each other. For huge swaths of population in North America and in Europe and in Africa, for example, the word Christian denotes a type of ethnic identity, a type of ingrained sets of habits and cultural mores that you're born into. For a lot of other people, the word Christian means a set of beliefs and uh, approaches towards the world, which, as I say, are actually diametrically opposed to other groups who also call themselves Christian. 
You can call yourself a Christian and support all sorts of things. You cannot call yourself a follower of the way of Jesus and support all sorts of things. And I think that we need to find the new way of speaking, which in fact is just the old way, because that's what the first followers of Jesus called themselves. They said they were followers on the way. And I think that this is something we need to start doing again. Stop using the word Christian. Unclench yourself from the bad habit. The word is meaningless now. A friend, one of the friends who wrote to me said, sometimes it feels now like calling yourself a Christian is to participate in a hate crime. And you know what? He's right. He's right. Calling yourself Christian in so many different environments is to identify yourself with some of the worst ideas currently active in the world today. And we have to face that. And if our measuring line is the way of Jesus, we are going to be able to determine what is right, what is true, what is noble. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Put your minds on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And if other forms of life and if other sentiments and if other expressions don't match the way of Jesus, then we can discount them. We are allowed to. We're not discounting the human being who did it, but we are allowed to say, it doesn't walk like a duck. It doesn't talk like a duck. It doesn't look like a duck. So I think we're allowed to say it's not a duck. We need to take seriously Kierkegaard's charge that Christendom has done away with Christianity. It no longer exists. And you might hear that and think it's just some sort of rhetoric, or maybe he's exaggerating to score a cheap point. But what if it's true? What if the forms of life and the culture that you, when you got converted or you think that you got converted into, what if those forms of life are shaped far more by what the nation needs or what your culture thinks it needs than by the way of Jesus? And in fact, this is what happens all the time. This isn't a minority event. This is the majority. The majority of people who call themselves Christians are animated and excited by ideas that are quite often diametrically opposed to the way of Jesus. And this is where the critique of patriotism and national identity comes in. Because Christendom, which has done away with Christianity, Christendom is the official culture. It's, the, it's not a church-state legal system. It's the culture. It's the culture that's been baptized. It's the culture that's been Christianized. It's the fact that you are born into a world in which everybody around you checks the same boxes. And so conversion into that world is conversion into that society. And we've forgotten or failed to notice that in the New Testament, following the way of Jesus puts you on a collision course precisely with those elements that are shared by the common society. Being a follower of Jesus in the New Testament sets you against common sense, against the sense we all share in common. Whereas for uh, most people today, conversion into Christianity is conversion or entry into a group in which you start to adopt their shared norms and values. And where do these shared norms and values come from? Are they being based on a logical or um, in any other way commitment 
to the following the way of Jesus? Do they show a, a high degree of seeking peace? Do they seek to not clutch tightly to their rightful goods, even when it's rightfully theirs? Do they exhibit an open-handed generosity towards foreigners? Do they show a lack of uh, attempt to gain riches? Do they show a priority for the poor? Do they show a high commitment to not using violence to get what they need or to solve a problem? This is the way of Jesus. It's not rocket science. You don't need a theology degree. It's not hard to understand. It is just hard to do, which is where the idea that the church should be a political, alternative political society comes in. That the church or the set of people who are following on the way of Jesus are meant to help each other do these things. They help each other give money to the poor so that then they can be supported in turn. They help each other lay down their lives for each other. They help each other seek peace rather than violence. This is what the point of the church is meant to be, but this is not what we find. What we actually find, don't we, is that the churches that we're a part of don't actually like Jesus very much. Sure, they sing about him and they talk about him, but they don't actually like him very much. He doesn't show up in their, their emotional and intellectual horizon. And you can see this happen all the time, especially around the areas of violence. Well, think of these three things. Foreigners, violence, lethal violence, and the acquisition of riches. Think of these three things. Now, Jesus had quite a lot to say about these things. He was resolutely pro-foreigner. He was always crossing over boundaries in order to reach the others. He was invading temples in order to let this house be a house of prayer for all nations. He was moving into Samaritan villages. If you want to know more about this, go and listen to my Mark podcast on the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus was resolutely pro-foreigner and he broke, bounded over boundaries all the time. He was always breaking boundaries. And anytime somebody set up some kind of purity law, there was never a purity law that Jesus didn't meet that he didn't cross over to the other side of. He embraced ethnic impurity to an astonishingly radical degree. He crossed over every boundary that is presented to him in the Gospels. Think about the way money works, the acquisition of riches, the storing up of riches, the common sense building of um, a, a nest egg. These are things that uh, the, the, the lending of money in or uh, interest. These are the foundations of capitalism. This is the foundations of the sort of common sense American dream. And Jesus is resolutely opposed to all of these things. Think of violence and lethal violence. There is no way you can make Jesus a, a, a poster boy for, for military recruitment, for le intentional lethal police violence, for capital punishment. You cannot make Jesus a, in any way a, a proponent of these things. For followers of Jesus, killing a human being to solve a problem is off the table. But these are three things that nations need. Nations need high boundaries and a sense of suspicion or superiority towards foreigners. Nations require the insider-outsider language. They require boundaries and walls and all that other stuff. 
America, for example, requires the capitalism and a system of usury, a system of lending for interest. It, it, our system, our Western system, actually needs us to be materialistic. It needs us to buy things we don't need. It requires that we continually spend and consume. And there's lots of material I can give you on that as well. But let's just take this as my headline. It requires us to act in ways that are diametrically opposed to anything Jesus said or did. And these are all the things that a nation needs. And this is why I say the church or the Christians today are far more, their imagination is far more shaped by the way of the nation than by the way of Jesus. And you'll see this all the time whenever you're getting into any debate or if you want to read their own works. And again, read the things that they want you to see. Go and read, go and find a blog or read a book or read a chapter by a conservative American defending the use of lethal violence, for example. I absolutely guarantee you that what they will do is, if they are Christian, they will, they might mention Jesus at the beginning. And it will be something like, yes, we know Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But you can't run a nation that way. And then they will mine the Old Testament text, or maybe they'll go and find some uh, mysterious and obscure verse in the book of Revelation or something like that, or they'll go to Romans 13, which we'll probably have to talk about in a bit. But Jesus is only mentioned by Christians when they are trying to disagree with him. This is the thing that once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. And I have marked, for example, thousands, not exaggeration, I have marked thousands of essays, undergraduate theology essays, and it, without fail, when they are asked a, uh, an assignment question defending the use of military or capital punishment or lethal violence, they will always do this as well. You'd be surprised how often self-confessed Christians do not mention Jesus at all. And in any case, when they do mention him, it's always to disagree with him or to find exceptions to the rule. And the exceptions are always to do basically with patriotism. We can't follow the way of Jesus because you can't run a country that way. And they're right. You can't run a country on the Sermon of the Mount. You can't run a country by the fruits of the Spirit. You can damn well try and run a country based on the Old Testament Ten Commandments, which is what we see. Historically, we have seen that as Christians worked their way through the system and started to become powerful... As Christians started to get their fingers on the levers of power, as they started to be responsible for land and armies and taxes and all the accoutrements that come with running a country, they stop talking about Jesus and they start talking about everything else. And everything else becomes an excuse or a justification for still paying lip service to the Bible but actually ignoring the way of Jesus. And in fact, the way of Jesus gets mocked. The amounts of times I've seen Trump supporters and uh, Christians, self-confessed Christians, mocking people who are trying to be Christ-like, mocking people who are trying to seek the, uh, the way of Jesus. 
So calling yourself a Christian really isn't that much different than just calling yourself a patriot. For a lot of people, right now, today, in America, the word patriotism and the word Christianity are often synonymous. But the earliest Christians thought that patriotism was a vice. They recognized that it wasn't a virtue. They recognized that allegiance to your fatherland, which is where patriotism comes from, pater, your paterland, allegiance to your fatherland and to your father's family, to the ethnic tribes that you're inherited, traditions you were born into, these were seen as rival claims. In fact, this was what you had to be baptized out of. Baptism means you die to the things uh, of the world that are giving you your identity and that are laying claims to your allegiance, and you're born into allegiance to Jesus, faith in Jesus. And the word faith is the word pistos, which means affiliation and allegiance. Faith in Jesus in the New Testament is a public demonstration of wanting to be with Jesus. It has to do with his kingship. It has to do with his kingdom. And when you repent and be baptized in the New Testament, you're saying no to the other forms of life and you're dying to those things and then you're being born again or raised up into a new form of life which has to do with faith following the kingship of Jesus. But this is the stuff, like I said, you don't see this happening. You don't see this preached. When I was in Bethel, I was in Bethel for a year. I heard the Sermon on the Mount preached once. And that wasn't preached by a guy from the Bethel environment. It was preached from a guy coming from Europe, a guest speaker. And I'm not saying that these people are against the Sermon on the Mount. What I'm saying is pay attention. What is, what is in there? What is on their shelf? What's in their mental Rolodex? What's in their folder? When they reach for something, what do they pull out? And you cannot be a good patriot and take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. You cannot actually be a good citizen and be a follower of Jesus. You can't be a reliable citizen, I should say. You can love your neighbor. It takes a mind already gripped by patriotism to miss how Jesus says in this, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, how Jesus says that love of neighbor is in the face of love of the co-nationalist. Your person who shares your national identity, the Levite, and the priest, they're the good patriots. They're the ones who share all your ethnic and heritage markers. They are not the good neighbor. The good neighbor is the hated outsider, the foreigner, the Samaritan. And Jesus tells the story as a deliberate attempt to wrestle the, uh, away the idea that your good neighbor was also your co-nationalist. And as I say, you've got to watch for our imaginations have been colonized by patriotism. The idea that being a Christian might make you a less dependable citizen rather than a more dependable citizen is unimaginable to most Christians today. They cannot see how this could be true. I was speaking to a man in Bethel. His name is Dan Farrelly. And I like Dan Farrelly, but I was speaking to him. And he said that if somebody came to him and said, the Lord's called me to be a soldier in the U.S. Army, I'd have no problem with it. And I just looked at him and was like, you'd have no problem. Not an issue at all with somebody saying, I'm going to kill my enemies. Even though Jesus said, love your enemies. To have no problem 
with somebody joining the US Army is to have no problem with somebody putting the allegiance of King Jesus under the allegiance to the president, whoever that might be, under the allegiance to a man-made country. All nations, no exception, are founded on principles and practices that are the opposite of anything Jesus said or did. Every single flag in every single nation has at its root or in its history genocide, slavery, tribal antagonism, racism, greed, shoring up goods and taking them out of circulation so that the other people can't get them. There is no exception to this rule. This is the world we're born into. Countries are something that we've been born into, but they are themselves evidence of rebellion against the way of Jesus. And the earliest Christians knew this. They knew that their nations that they were born into, the people groups they were born into, were not good. They knew that they were the forms of life that they had inherited. They knew that they could be redeemed and they had a sense of redemption for them, but they didn't think they were good in and of themselves. And the vision of the nations in the New Testament is that they get dissolved. I had a good long conversation with Chris Vallotton once, who is, of course, also a famous Bethel speaker. And Chris Vallotton was very, very pro-patriotism. And he thinks that every nation has a part to play. And he very uh, enthusiastically holds open his Bible and goes to the verse in Revelation where it says Jesus gives the rod to rule the nations to the Christian. He says, see, you rule the nations. It's a good thing. And what Chris Vallotton didn't do was read not the next verse. He didn't even read the next clause in the same sentence, which is that Jesus gives you the rule, the rod to rule the nation, and you will smash it like a clay pot. The rod that rules the nations smashes the nations. It's from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage in vain? The rod is, an, is a symbol of authority. And the earliest believers, the earliest followers of the way of Jesus knew that the healing of the nation was their dissolution. In the book of Revelation, when they rulers lift off their crowns and throw them at Jesus's feet, that is the point of their healing. When they give over the symbol of their sovereignty and their independence. The nations are not good. They are part of the fabric of creation that the Lord is redeeming. That he's weaving together. And to talk about nations as if they are the ultimate end and as if they are what you should uh, find your identity in. What you should die for. And what you should kill for is to create a God out of a thing that was invented by human tradition and shared collective imagination. It's to make a God out of something. It's to give that thing in which you live and move and have your being. And these nations are precisely the thing that the New Testament spends a lot of time trying to downgrade, trying to prize apart the individual's identity from their prior nations. There is no barbarian, Scythian, slaver-free, but now you are in Christ. And so the idea that your nationhood deserves your utmost allegiance 
was directly counteracted by the New Testament. Which is why I think the word Christian is so pointless now. Because the word Christian often effectively just means a good patriot or a good citizen or a good member of your culture that you were born into. And even when it doesn't mean that, the people who call themselves Christians often are putting the most, their best and brightest energy and money and resources and time and talent and including their own children. They are giving them over to the service of the nation, to patriotism. It's the rival God. And in fact, patriotism is the most successful ideology. It's more successful than the gospel. It doesn't make it true. Just because a thing is more popular doesn't make it better. Back in the day, Baywatch was the most popular television program in the history of the world. Didn't make it any good. So patriotism is, is far more popular, far more powerful. It has much of a stronger command on the hearts and minds of people. Much stronger than the gospel. Much stronger than the gospel of peace. Because, like I said, you will see uh, people will talk about Jesus or pay lip service to Jesus. And then at the first hurdle, at the first time when their property or land or family is in danger or when their country is in danger, they will throw over the way of Jesus and they will find the way of the world instead. And they will embrace it and then they will find ways to justify that. But the way of the world is to defend what is yours and what you think is rightfully yours. It's to group together with people who sound like you and look like you as much as possible. And it's to use lethal violence in the maintaining of order and then the defense of those things. And these are the opposite of the way of Jesus. I don't know how else to keep saying it. This is why nationalism and patriotism are inimicable to the way of Jesus. They are actually opposite to it. And it's so hard to hear this. Christians don't believe it. They cannot believe that patriotism is a vice. And they all immediately think, oh, well, you must mean the Nazis or you must mean the nationalists. My patriotism is fine. But it's not fine. Because your patriotism has as its end the killing of enemies and the exclusion of foreigners and the shoring up of resources for people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible. Which, don't get me wrong, is absolutely necessary for the running of a country as we have built them. But all that shows me is that countries require practices which Jesus explicitly said to his followers not to do. Which tells me that patriotism is a problem. That your job in this world is not to make your country the best country it can be. Your job in this world, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to expand his kingdom. And his kingdom was seen by his followers and was seen by people around as being an, an alternative to the other kingdoms. And a daily lived experience, which manifests itself directly in terms of how they relate to their enemies by refusing to kill them. How the earliest followers of Jesus dealt with money by giving it away so that there was no poor amongst them, how the earliest followers of Jesus dealt with racial and ethnic boundaries and barriers, by breaking them down, constantly fighting for it. Most of the New Testament books, the engine driving them is an attempt to dismantle ethnic and racial prejudice and privilege. I'm going to stop here for this session. If you are interested in this, there's a lot more material on it, obviously, 
I would recommend that you go to the Nomad podcast and find the episode where I speak for God and country and speak about this stuff at length. Part of my vision for doing this podcast was to air my views, but then to bounce them off the, the ideas of my friends. And as I said at the beginning, I've invited Chris and Sean, who are real Americans, whose hearts and minds I respect and like. Uh, and I, I want to see what, what was going through their minds and their hearts when they heard this stuff. But we're not trying to just answer all the questions, wrap everything up with a neat little bow. We're just trying to deal with things that are getting churned up or questions that are left hanging and to not be scared to leave things hanging or to leave things churned up. We're just going to sit with some of them for a while. So the point of this section is not to answer all the questions and deal with all the arguments. It's to start to air what's been churned up. It's to start to let it see some daylight. And perhaps we'll come back to it in a future episode. Perhaps we'll just follow Chris and Sean and me as we deal with the things that have been dealt with. But that's the vision for this time now. So Chris, when I was talking about all the things I was talking about, what was going through your heart and mind? One of the things that you said, to use one of those common parlance word was, I was triggered, is you essentially saying we have to get away from the word Christian or the label or the naming of ourselves as Christian. I felt like, oh, oh no. <laughs> You were taking something from me. Now, and I think it's more than just a surface level thing. I, I've actually argued for this in times past. Like I, I'm all for redeeming things, meaning okay. like a, maybe a parallel example is the word father. Uh, so many people in our society ha uh, have had horrible fathers. Right. And I've lived my life trying to be a good one. And I, and I believe if, if there is such a thing like an archetype of, of right. fatherhood and fatherness, let's redeem it. Let's, let's redeem what that, the essence of that is. And, and let's, let's live it out. Let's make that change. I think what I'm reflecting on is what happens when we have two polarities of an idea, whether, you know, we think politically the left and the right or, or whatever it is, there's this internal struggle and we kind of get lost in the swirl of our own logic. And, and we, we often come away, I would say, I'll, I'll speak it for myself. I come away not knowing what I think anymore mm -hmm. because what I heard you saying is actually something that I agree with, right. <laughs> which is, hey, everybody, this term can almost mean anything and it can actually mean some really truly wicked things that I would hope most Christians would disagree with. But I'm seeing that actually people that call themselves don't disagree with. So what does this word Christian mean? And so I'm having this internal battle going on of ideology and of, of my history, my own history. Like, well, that's just the word I call myself. Why would we want to change the simplest word we have in our language? It's just, it's just a describer. I think I'm, I am sitting with that, that internal yeah. struggle that it's not resolved where I kind of think you're wrong and I know you're absolutely right all at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it's similar, isn't it? To like the word gay, for example. Okay, technically, the word gay means happy and glad, and it also means homosexual. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you find people who are, they might be technically correct going, the word gay, I can use the word gay and not mean homosexual. And you're like, well, yeah, you might be technically correct, but that's not what 99% of the world hears when they hear that word anymore. And I wonder whether we're at that kind of stage with the word Christian now. Mm. I know that technically, there's all sorts of meanings for the word Christian. I just wonder whether culturally and politically and socially, 
it's reached a saturation point where it, it it doesn't have that original meaning anymore. I don't know. I hear you, Chris. I do hear you. <laughs> I mean, I myself, I'm addicted to the word. It's very hard to, if somebody asked me, are you a Christian? I would find it very hard to say no. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I do. I totally hear you. Sean, what was going through your hearts and minds? What was being churned up? Well, I definitely, I definitely was, um, I was turned up around my, my part in it. And then, and then what I mean by that is, you know, these are, these are family and friends of mine that we're talking about. And uh, not only that, but it's also the culture and the economic system and the jobs and the industries that are dominated by a lot of this kind of thought. And so it made me really, really struggle internally as far as to your point, how, how do I, how do I follow the way and not do so in a compromising manner? And then what does that look like? And that I really coming into these different ways of how you can balance that, if you will, of kind of something compromising in some area. Mm. But if I do that, if I, if I try to help the system or try to serve God internal to this massive socioeconomic system of which I'm a huge part of, and it seems to be getting even more part of on a daily basis, just in my own personal life in terms of job opportunity and things like that, that you're going deeper down that road. And then am I just, and if I say, well, I'm doing that and I can help spread the word or help, be that kind of person in a in, in an important, if you will, economically mm. important decision room. Am I doing that at the same time, kind of basking in the in the in the privilege of what all that brings? As kind of an aside, yeah. Does that I mean honestly, you could look at that and you just feel like a sellout. You feel like you're just you're you're a lukewarm Christian, right? Versus that, and that's that's definitely where I go. Man, I don't know if there's an end to that question or that problem. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, because there's the whole salt and light thing and the whole mustard seed or the yeast working its way through the dough and it's like you know yeah it's a real challenge to someone like me to just have this kind of sense of moral purity where you can just be sort of cut off from the whole world when actually the reality is you have to pay your electrical bill and you have to go to go to trader joe's and you have to <laughs> drop your kids off at nursery like, there's so many things you have to do you can't just sort of say, oh, to hell with all with all y'all, can you? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that, Sean? <laughs> you can say that and you said it properly, so I appreciate that. But no, and that's, that's the part too, is that I've had so many moments in the last, especially a couple of years, 18 months, that if you'd have really given me the opportunity to say, to hit the road, I would yeah. have if I didn't yeah. have a wife and kids. And then I'm like, well, am I doing it for them? And then it becomes this thing where like, do I drag them through it if they're not equally yoked, if you will? And they're not. And so, but should I do that because it's the right thing to do and make them... Yeah force them to do that? Or do I compromise? And then what's my compromise? Well, I'm living better than 99.9% .9 of people that have ever lived. So mm -hmm. am I really compromising? I mean, I will say that, not that this is an, any answer to any of our questions, but at least we're now living the same sort of questions that the early Christians lived in the New Testament. So they also lived in a completely compromised world, and they also didn't live separate from it. I mean, that's what all that eat, me, eating meat sacrificed to idols business is, you know, in, in First Corinthians and stuff. So there's a lot of that. I don't think the solution was to create a little enclave. They weren't living in, what is it? What is the name of that uh, celebration with the Disneyland suburb that they invented? You know, Disney invented its own celebration USA, the Disney suburb. You know, that wasn't the Christian vision to create their own little suburb. So I think a lot of the New Testament, we're, I, let's, let's, let's keep sitting with this one. This is going to be one I think we're going to have to keep dealing with as we keep going. Because, you know, um, you've heard the Harrison Ford story about George Lucas, have you? <laughs> Where Harrison Ford, apparently on the set of Star Wars, went, you can type this shit, George, but you sure can't say it. <laughs> and I like, you can sit here and say all these things on a podcast, but 
how do you actually do it? I suppose this is going to be the real issue for us, isn't it? How do you actually do it? Yeah. I asked part of my vision is to bring in people who I think are doing it in future episodes. We're going to be having interviews and we're going to be finding these people who are offering small bits of the puzzle. I think you were, you were nodding, Chris. I can see you. You were nodding. What were you nodding at? Oh, I just, I just remember that story uh, of Harrison Ford complaining so much, uh, you know, just, I thought you were worried about the S word that I just used. Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) Yes. I was thinking if my mother was listening, uh Oh, what, what now? (laughs) I think she'd have been shocked at some of the stuff before this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What did you guys think about the presidential language? I was fine with it because you were merely quoting <laughs> and you let us sit in the awkwardness a little bit. You seem still disgusted by it all. And maybe the fact that didn't you say, uh, this is the world you created, mm-hmm. meaning like he said the thing and he said it years ago and it came out years ago now. And now we're, we're still, we, we allowed this to happen in a sense. If you voted for president Trump and you support him, and then you turn around and get mad at me for calling people morons or calling women dogs or, you know, any of those things that I said, well, I don't know what else to say to you. I mean, the person that you are enthusiastically supporting says those things all the time, every day, you know? Yeah. And, and I guess maybe what, maybe the reason this podcast can exist is because he forced our hand and we're trying to get other followers of Christ to, to just see it. You mentioned this kind of in, in other episodes as well. Maybe you think there sh- we should be a little bit more publicly sorrowful because we've allowed this to happen. Like you, you call out some Christians you s- that they're, they're actually not beating their chests. They're not browbeating no. themselves because of what happened. They, they would be more remorseful if they've actually meant it. But uh, exactly. that's for a later yeah. episode, perhaps. I don't know, Sean. I mean, do you, do you mind that I name people by name? Do you think that's an issue? I think it could potentially be an issue o- only because not, not, have, not even having to do with whether or not it's accurate. This is the part that I think where the politics truly right. comes in in. And that is the, one of the underlying elements, too, from an external standpoint that, that I hear and continue to hear, not just here, but other places, is dualism. It's really around dualism is kind of this, I think it's one of the things we have to deal with around this, the nature of this becomes an us versus them. Okay. Right? And so as soon as that starts to happen, and if I'm on either side of it and you're only giving, we're only giving somebody a, one chance or one place to be based on this, even if it is right, you know, where does grace come into this? That's kind of okay. one of those external challenges I have around because, because going back to the fact that these are people that I know mm-hmm. where they're misguided and where they may have something incomplete in terms of what they know, it doesn't necessarily reflect on their true character, which may sound odd. Yes. Because where it gets slippery, right? Because it's like, well, you're voting for a guy who had no problem basically physically accosting a woman because he was a billionaire, even though the, even if, yeah. despite the fact that she was even married. If you go back yeah. and listen to the audio per se, like he, this was a married woman and he could just do what he wanted because he was a billionaire, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to deny that part of it. And then uh, this slips into that whole thing we're having an issue with around, right now around social dis- justice and the rest of these things, whether it's misogyny or race. Well, we'll get to it later. It's not all, you know, there's good people on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem too, is that there, yeah. there's people on both sides who are sometimes good and sometimes bad. They're not either one is kind of where I'm, I'm moving a, a, from a personal standpoint. We only leave it to kind of this polarization and we really only give the other side one, one choice on how to be. Well, I'm going to, in future episodes, in fact, even the next one, I am going to address this more directly, a little bit about the idea that, like, how can good people, and they are good people, lend their name to something so bad? And it is so bad. How can both those things be true? So this is where I'm, I'm starting to explore that and trying to explain to people 
And I, I guess us Westerners, not just Americans, but any Anglo-American has a very high individualism. So our individual motives becomes the horizon on which we act. So we judge everybody based on our, if you, if you personally are a good person or not. Uh, <laughs> I think that's part of the problem because you might personally be a really good person and really kind. And you then use all your money and power and voice to support really bad things. And those two things can be true. And that itself is a problem, which we have to lift our eyes beyond the horizon, right? So I will definitely be looking at that further. But it's hard because you can't say everything all at once. I mean, you only have half an hour or whatever. And you can't, if you spent your whole time always saying, oh, there's some really bad things, but there's also really good people here. And if you're always doing that, you could never really say anything at all. And I, I kind of feel like personally, it's got so bad that the time to be all kind of gentle. We're looking at that in the rearview mirror. We've crossed some big lines now. <laughs> you know, there are some actual self-confessed Nazis, self-confessed KKK. People who, who call themselves white nationalists are on the Trump payroll. We're not talking about sort of innocent and benign differences of opinion. We're talking about like stuff that should actually... I mean, even in the last couple of days, the uh, Republican... Trump team was using imagery that they knew had come from the symbols being used in Holocaust well, war camps, right? The concentration camps. They were using symbols that had been applied to leftists and communists. And it was an upset. It was a red triangle. And that was the symbol that you'd have to wear. And the Nazis were putting left wingers into co concentration camps. And that was the symbol they had to wear. And the Trump team was using red triangles. And this was the ad that Facebook finally took off but they were using red triangle symbols to signal to their to their people what they you know what their attitude was towards lefties and communists air quotes and that's a problem and it happens over and over and over again and you don't want to say trump is an actual nazi but there are people on his team that don't mind using that symbolism because they know it's reaching the people they want it to reach and they don't mind that then there's a big fuss and that Facebook bans their ad because the, the damage is done, right? The image is out there. And that happens over and over again. And I look at that and I just think, no, we just got to stop pretending like this is a normal political debate. It's not a normal political debate. And good people are supporting bad things. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, guys. Chris, Sean, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to insult your family members. I'm going to insult your church leaders. I might drop the S word. I'm sorry. I'm going to get it wrong. You have to have grace with me, Sean, <laughs> as well. Well, I think, it's, I think it's more the struggle of the truth in it. Like, you, like I don't, I don't know. And this is where kind of one of the questions I wanted to throw out there from a discussion standpoint is, is it's kind of, I think leads into this, which is, so who ultimately is responsible for that change or that opportunity to change? Like what, because it's, it's the same old adage we've talked about a lot, which is I can't like change your mind or we can do these things. We can enforce certain things create a result that we want, right? With the legislation or might or power, which is part of the problem. Mm. We're going to force this, either identify you so you're on the other side, stereotype you into, into if you are a liberal or a socialist, this is what it means. That mm. means you're a Democrat, which means all these things is check all those boxes, which is part of that identifier you talked about. But in terms of like what, to, for me to change the heart of anyone who feels that way or the people that I do know, I see them with this rhetoric, the rhetoric you're talking about and, you, and they're missing, as I see a blind spot, even when that I'm, even one that I may or may not have even had on a personal level, 
in terms of how do you change that blind spot? Is it is it ultimately up to us, or when does the Holy Spirit? Well, and I'm not trying to pass the buck here. I'm not trying to give you ammunition to change somebody else's heart. I want you to change your heart. I'm trying to save your soul. I want you to stop being a patriot because patriotism is idolatry. I want Chris to stop saying the word Christian because the word Christian means something wrong now. I'm going to make mistakes, but that's, that is basically my agenda right now. I want to convince people to have a new imagination, like from the ground up, to rethink how they're looking at the world. I don't, I don't think it's going to work at the Thanksgiving t- dinner table with your family. I'm not necessarily thinking that, that that's not the measure of my success, is whether you can produce some sound bites to beat your, your Republican uncle at, in an argument. I'm not, I don't think that's what's going to happen here. But I'm trying to maybe guide people through the sort of stuff that I myself am going through of, of trying to rethink the world and what I'm doing in the world. And also some of the forces that have gone into shaping who I am. And I'm thinking about them as well and thinking maybe those forces, I've been told they were good, but maybe they're not so good. So I guess that's kind of where I'm, where I'm going to be going with this. Uh, Stephen, I have I have something that maybe can bounce off of that, mm. and uh, it really struck me as I was preparing this morning and rethinking over what you said. I, I'm thinking a lot about social media and how people engage with each other, and, and just the patterns that I see that people just talk past each other so much. The word that came to mind is I was I was wondering if if people that I know were to listen to you, would they think that you are filled with hate, and are they would they think that you're filled with rage at them? And right. I know that you say that you're not going to insult. You're not going to use insulting words, insulting language. What I'm reflecting on is actually, I, I know you a little bit and I've read your work. I actually know that you are filled with love. Yeah. That that actually is why you're saying all the things that you're saying. And so, like, so, so I will say the same thing too. I, I say, here's, here's something that I say. I say no church exists in the United States of America. There's no church inside the United States of America. Every single church, when you walk in, it's actually the kingdom of heaven. Okay. It's, it's, it's the throne room. And so that's why a flag wouldn't belong there. Right. Now, people might perceive my, when I say something like that, they'll go, so you hate America then. Right. Yeah, right. And you're just filled with rage and hate and you want America to die and be destroyed. Yeah. And then I kind of go, well, maybe a little bit, but but let's move past that just a second here because I'm actually not filled with hate towards my my country, my the plains and the prairies that I live on and the flat no. states. I love it. It's beautiful. I'm not filled with hate. I'm filled with love. And the only reason I said that thing about the flag is because yeah. I love. Yeah. Um, I'm curious your approach because y- you get you get caught up. You're, you're saying some stuff. You're emotional. And yeah. guess what? The people who are going to, they're going to have their counter podcast. <laughs> who knows? Maybe you'll inspire other podcasts just to respond to you, but they're going to be filled with the same, same emotions. And I guess I'm curious, right. yeah. A, you can answer, are you filled with hate? <laughs> and B, like, how do we dialogue with each other? Like, do you have any insights in, into that? Well, no, I'm not filled with hate. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I do think we get ourselves into a, a muddle where we think that just naming clearly a position that we think is wrong is somehow also now to hate it. I don't hate Bethel Church. I don't hate, you know, those charismatic leaders that I've benefited from and learned from. Um, people I love have had their lives, like, change for the absolute best because of that culture. Uh, so I don't hate it, but I don't think it's good, or I, I don't think that, that what's good about them is going to survive if they continue down this route of nationalism. 
So, you know, a lot of it is that kind of uh, basically, okay, I know this sounds cheesy, but I just, I actually really just love Jesus. And it really makes me sad and mad to hear the name of Jesus being used and then people doing and saying the exact opposite of anything he would have said or did. So I, in a way, I just kind of, there is love coming out of it, but it's not sentiment. Well, maybe it's sentimental, but it's not. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit worried about emotion. I do get emotional about things, but I always, just emotion itself. I mean, Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor and theologian, he was, he was very suspicious of anybody who got sentiment or got emotional during a speech or who cried during a sermon because he, he thought that, that they were just, trying to manipulate you uh, and that the truth should, shouldn't need emotional manipulation. I don't know. I haven't crossed over to the Bonhoeffer side yet. but Because one of the things I thought was really refreshing about your the first episode was you know, having heard you and talked to you on these other elements, there's, a, there's a, 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 not a script, but an energy, very academic, very kind of what I would consider balanced. And so when you were much more emotional in this first episode, that actually was almost refreshing to me to kind of, it's like, <laughs> like the you know the the heart behind it not just the academic mind right yeah. so so that although i do understand what chris is saying about taking when people start when those emotions come out there's it's almost so overwhelming you're, you're not sure what to do with it it can yeah. sound it can sound back to the divisive like you're over there and we're over here which is not what you're about either so i'm glad you did that mm. but i do want a, a quick question because you said the bethel thing I, I didn't know at all it was really a surprise back to this diet but chris's question around dialogue Obviously, you had dialogue with people that did not resonate with you, but was there anybody that you or did you did talk to at Bethel that kind of, I don't want to say came to the side, but then started to understand what you were saying a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, see, with all these environments, I mean, I should probably say very quickly, like they, like any large movement, it's, it's not monolithic. It doesn't speak with one voice. It's just that all of the public famous leaders of that environment have publicly and volubly given their support to Trump and the Republican Party, and, and not just Trump, but also all the aims, you know, Zionism, military, capital punishment, free market capitalism, all those things, they've, they're very clearly for all those things, but not everybody in that environment. So I have met uh, a number of people who, are, who I consider some of my best friends. They met Jesus in that environment. Some of them still work for that church, and they are as passionate about the same things I'm passionate about. And, and when they get the chance, which isn't very often, they speak it from the stage if they get the chance. And so, I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to say that it's a monolithic vo- you know, empire. It's not. You know, part of part of my frustration with a place like that is is how well they do love Jesus and how well they do talk about the kingship of Jesus. And then what's frustrating is when people actually try and follow that through to its logical conclusion, then the Americanisms comes back in. It raises its head again. And people then say, "Oh no, you you can't go there far. You can't go that far. We we know you said we know we said King Jesus, but wouldn't want to appear to be anti-American." And uh, I have friends in that environment who are moving to that direction, where they realize that the kingship of Jesus is moving them into a conflict with the normal way of life in their country. But uh, they're the ones who are working out that dialogue. And and to be honest, they're the ones who wouldn't be able to use those names that I dropped in this first episode. They wouldn't be able to drop those names because they have like more of an actual relationship with them. So I need to respect that. Um, I'm trying not to slander anybody though. I mean, I don't think, I think dialogue has to also involve actually naming the stuff in the room. Um, I don't think it, dialogue could never happen if you everybody just pretends they're all 
sort of in agreement with each other and wouldn't ever really mention anything that's actually difficult. So I guess that's kind of where I'm at with that. Chris, your question, though, about how to engage in dialogue, that's going to be an ongoing. Let's keep going with that one. Yeah, I have more questions about that as well. Yeah. Internally and externally. <laughs> so I'm going to draw this this part to a close because I think we need to. I'm starting to start to talk about my second episode now. I think you just got to go and listen to it. And then I think we got to meet back up again. And we'll continue our little tent talks, our tent theology tent talks. Ha ha. See what I did there? And uh, I think we're going to do that. I would also say, guys, like I've also done some Bible studies. I mentioned it in, in my first episode there, but I've done these Bible studies on Mark and Acts. I'm kind of working my way through them. I think we should start releasing these those as well. So we're going to have this kind of uh, this tent theology talk where we talk about nationalism and patriotism and the kingdom of God. But I think after we've got that out, we're going to start to move into the, the gospel of Mark and we're going to start to release just a, a the, political theological Bible study and go straight back to the roots. And I think cause that's going to be part of it. And also, by the way, that might well help in dialogue with Christians and people who call themselves Christians. If you can just talk about the Bible till the kingdom comes, they can't really accuse you of, of uh, not caring about Jesus then, can they? <laughs> Shall we end here, friends, and meet up again after we've gone through episode two of Followers of the Way? All right, bless you and see you soon.